Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap featuring my good friend, portfolio manager Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how you doing? Good. How are you today? Happy Easter. Hey, same to you. Um, and folks, um, this isn't quite exact a weekly market recap because Lance and I are filming this uh, on Thursday, not our normal Friday recording. Um, we're doing that because uh, I am in the middle of a move. And so uh, this whole studio you see here, um, hopefully this will be invisible to you. But um, uh, just in case it's not, one will you know, open the kimono, let folks know what's going on in the background here. Um, you might see me in a couple of different backgrounds before we get get this one here replicated at the new location. Um, folks always ask me, is this like a, a Zoom background or using a green screen? No, it's actual wood paneling, but it is affixed to this wall here, so I can't take it with me. So, but today is Thursday, by the way, and tomorrow is the holiday because it is Good Friday, so markets are closed. So technically, oh. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a Friday market recap, right? It, I mean, it is. I mean, thanks for reminding me. I, yeah. I had forgotten that. Yep. So yeah, it's it's a it's a weekly market recap. All right. Before we get into the recap, folks, and I promise we got a lot of data to get into here. Um, one funny little story that'll make you chuckle, Lance. Um, you saw a spinal tap, right? Oh yeah. All right. So trying to get this same paneling to where we're going has been an absolute nightmare. It's been like a total comedy of errors. Uh, they don't sell at retail anymore. So I've had to track down the like West Coast wholesale distributor of this stuff and finally got it through uh, the purchasing process at this company and got it FedExed out to the guy who's going to rebuild this thing for me. And you remember in Spinal Tap when they, they jot down the dimensions for their Stonehenge set on camera, yeah. or, you know, on, on, on a little piece of paper, and then they show up on stage and, and they got the feet and inches wrong, and it's this tiny little model. Well, so we had thought we were getting three boxes of this stuff, which is what we need to get the full background. They shipped out only three panels. So my guy who was set to work on it yesterday was like, uh, how small is your set? Because I only have three little panels here to do <laughs> So hopefully, folks, by the time you, you see me next, uh, I'll, I'll have the full paneling. But if not, you know, we can all blame Spinal Tap. There you go. Um, all right. Well, look, so as we look at the, the week's actions since we met last time, Lance, um, markets are down slightly. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a bunch of data that's come out this week that we're going to talk through. But I'm just curious, as you sort of look at the general action, is this just a consolidation based upon the big run we had last week? Are we getting into overbought ter territory here? Or, or what is the TA telling you at this point in time? Yeah, so and very interestingly, this is exactly what I discussed in, in this past weekend's newsletter. So again, we'll have a new one out this coming weekend. We're actually be talking about this, this massive surge in reverse, reverse repo balances, which are over 2 trillion now. So we're going through a full description of, of what that means and, and where, what that potentially means for the markets. But if we go back and look at last week's uh, newsletter is a good example. And here, let me just share my screen uh, very quickly with you. Um, this was something that we actually covered on two different fronts. So first of all, um, we, we talked about this run up since the beginning of the year being roughly uh, you know, 88% of the gains came from the top 10 stocks. So it's been a very narrow rally here so far. But from a technical perspective, you know, this was has been very interesting because um, we we climbed up very rapidly last week. We got above the 200-week moving average. Then we moved above the, the 50, sorry, the 200-day moving average. Then we crossed above the 50. And as soon as we did that, the market just took off and we ran into the top of this downtrend line from really the April highs. And that was a kind of our initial target. 
And the market climbed above that a little bit on Monday. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, we came back down and are retesting that level of support. So we're now turning that previous resistance, that downtrend line that we got above it, turning that into support if the market can hold through Thursday. So that's the, the big ish. Uh, so, but right now the markets are positive today. Started out a little bit weak this morning because of the jobless claims data, but the market has, has really kind of looked at that and now taken off again. And, and we're seeing technology back into kind of leading the charge, Google, Apple, Microsoft really kind of running the boat today. Um, but importantly, when we we kind of looked at, you know, some of the longer term trends of the markets and, and then the newsletter, we got through this kind of uh, issues of the, the different factors that are weighing on the economy and the markets and this kind of dichotomy we have between, um, you know, this rising bull market that we've got going on and the issues of, you know, kind of the, the underlying indicators. But what was important last week, and we said this um, in, in the letter, if this lower left-hand quadrant of this six-panel chart that I'm, I'm showing you is important. So this is every major market and sector. So this is international emerging markets. Um, it is all the sectors of the S&P uh, and bonds all kind of put into one chart. And what we measure is every week, so this is a weekly adjustment, we measure how much those sectors and markets are overbought. And last week, every one of those sectors and markets were massively overbought. I mean, they were- that, they, That's amazing. Yeah, they were just pegged at the top. So we wrote in there, said, be, be aware that we're likely going to have a correction this coming week. And that's exactly what's happened so far. So, right, so sorry, get, sorry to interrupt, but just to use another right. spinal tap analogy, I mean, it looks like they're all pegged to 11. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are, uh, for the most part, other than bonds, and which is now caught up this week because bonds had a pretty good week this week. But you know, it's it's been a very interesting uh, you know market this year because last year, you know, it was up like thirty percent. Else was negative, and and everybody hated Fang stocks. So in November, I wrote this article called "Are Fang Stocks Dead?" and it it gave the it basically saying, look, everybody hates Fang stocks. It's probably time to buy Fang stocks. And if you'll notice this year, technology, communications, and discretionary are the three best performing sectors by a wide margin. Over what the economy's uh, over what the major market's doing, but energy is one of the worst performing sectors. So it's just kind of a very interesting rotation now occurring within the overall markets. Hey, can, can I ask a question about that? It, yeah. it, is it is it rotation, or is this more just sort of overall net market inflows and outflows? Right. You you had that chart earlier that said that eighty eight percent of the gains so far this year have come from those top stocks, right? And right. This is sort of that giant mindless robot we talk about that that uh, Bill Fleckenstein and Michael Green talk about. You know the, yeah, the passing, algorithmic. Passing. <laughs> yeah, is that is that more what's been going on here? Which is just that more capital has been coming in. We talked about liquidity indices last week that were rising since October. Yeah, so it's a little bit of that. So a, a little bit of it is uh, actually. Let me rephrase it. A lot of it is the passive indexing issue, which is. You know, Apple's in 383 or 85 different ETFs. And so every time somebody buys the SPY, you know, the SPY, SP 500 ETF, or they buy the Vanguard SP 500 ETF, or they buy a mega cap growth stock ETF, Apple's in all those. So, the, uh, so out of all the money flows that are coming in, the top 10 stocks make up about 30% of the index. So they get 30% of the flow. So, not surprising that's the case. But also, it is important that money is coming out of areas like energy 
um, and, and the other kind of deflationary or sorry, inflationary assets from last year are now moving into the disinflationary assets this year. So the trade is the rotation is really pretty clear that the inflation trades of last year are now becoming disinflation trades. And you and I talked about this. We said, you know, look, when we get to that disinflationary environment, money's going to go to companies that can generate earnings in a slower growth economy. And that's right. technology. So that's and that's right. exactly what you're seeing going on here. And there's there's one other quick chart here. Um, let me just show you this one very quickly, because I think this really sums up a couple of, of, of important points. So this is what we call our risk reward analysis. And this is in our newsletter every week. And, and what this table shows us is uh, on the right hand. So this is what this does is this resets on the first day of every month. So on the first day of every month, everything is trading within its normal range for a month. So in a normal month, and this is based on volatility of each individual sector or market. So uh, basic materials, for example, might move up or down in a given month by 2%, right? On average, I'm just making up a number. Um, so if it moves more than that in a month, it's outside of its normal volatility ranges. And that suggests that if it's, if it's up more than 2% or down more than 2%, that there may be an opportunity to buy or sell uh, in that if it's outside of its normal ranges. And so what we're seeing here is, and again, this, re, we'll, this will be updated this week and we'll see what the ranges are for, for the month of April so far, but we're probably going to see technology trading outside of its normal range um, because of, of what it's been doing as of late. But I want you to really so, but focus on this far right-hand side, which is uh, the, the deviation above the short and long-term moving averages. So this is the deviation of these individual sectors and markets above and below their long-term moving averages. And then the far right-hand column where it says bullish or bearish, that is when the, the short-term weekly moving average has crossed above or below the long-term moving average. So this basically think about like a 50-day, 200-day moving average, but this is on a much longer weekly basis. So it's a, it's a slower to turn and gives you a much better signal of market trends. What's interesting is, is that despite all of the bearishness in the, in the overall view of the market, most, the, the vast majority of sectors and markets are in bullish trends. In other words, the short-term moving averages have now crossed above long-term moving averages. Yep. And those tend to stay in place for 12 to 18 months. So what this tells you is, is that the market itself, in terms of price action, is a lot more bullish than what the economic headlines and, and kind of media is telling us. And so we want to make sure and give some credence to that. Doesn't mean it can't rotate over and, and go very bearish quickly. We did see that uh, back in 2015, 2016 during Brexit. Um, we, we, we had turned everything bullish, quickly went bearish. Janet Yellen calls the Bank of England, says, y'all need to do QE. And then Three weeks later, everything was back to bullish again. So, you know, these can flip flop back and forth, but normally outside of extraordinary events, these tend to be more bullish longer term indicators. All right. That's super fascinating, Lance. I'm really curious. What, what did it look like last October when we were near the lows? Oh, well, that so that's a really good question because, you know, back then everything was super bearish at that point, of course, and, and everybody was very concerned like, you know, this is, you know, really kind of the depths of the bear market. And so let's go back and we can look at that exact same chart. I keep this chart uh, consistent every week and I store it in a folder. So I can actually go back eight, eight years now and look at these charts from five, six, seven years ago. Um, and it's always interesting to do these kind of comparative analysis. But this is the, char the actual chart. Uh, whoops. Hold on. 
So this is the actual chart from October of last year. And you'll see that basically every sector and market is in bearish territory. But now notice though, the risk range, which is, the, it says risk range high. And you'll see all those red bars versus green bars. That means that those sectors or markets were trading outside of their normal risk ranges. At that time, only real estate utilities were trading within their normal risk ranges that, that were kind of set up in a, in a more bullish sector. And, and back then it was interesting because utilities were in a bullish mode, which you would expect during a bear market. Um, and today now they're, in, they're, in, they're now one of the few sectors that are bearish um, because of the rotation out of those sectors of safety back into risk in the markets. So All yeah, right. it's a different view. Awesome. Um, hey, do me a favor, just, just pull up the newsletter again real quickly while we're talking here. Um, but I'm glad that you've walked through all this, Lance, because it really does give a lot of insight into exactly how technical the analysis that you guys do at RIA is, right? It's not just right. guys with opinions. You're looking <laughs> at a ton of data, and right. then you're processing that, and then you're, you know, arguing back and forth with your colleague there, Michael Leibowitz, and, you know, trying to trying to come up with, you know, a course of action based upon what all the data is telling us. But but if you can pull up pull, pull up the uh, the newsletter you were walking through and share your screen again real quick. Sure. Okay. Um. So uh, just scroll up and down for a second. Okay. Um, just so people can get a sense for you know all the different types of oh. charts and data that you have in there. Um. You guys put this out every weekend. Correct. Right. So if, yeah. if somebody wants to get a good dashboard on what all the major indices are, are saying and, and, and the key, you know, data sets that you guys are looking at right now to base on your decision making, they can actually subscribe to this newsletter for free and get all this, yeah. right? Absolutely. No, yeah, absolutely. No, no risk at all. And, and we go through. So every week we kind of go, like I said, this week's topic, right? We have a topic that we go through. We start out with just a, a market view and we say, this is what happened in the markets this week. This is what we expect next week. And then we have a topic. So this week is reverse repo. What does it mean? What does that mean for banks? What's happening with it? Is this something to be concerned about? Right, there's a lot, lots of concern about it. Um, but you know, once we get down towards you know the bottom, we go through a lot of just market analysis. So market statistics. We look at every individual sector. Uh, you know, which sectors are performing best and worst. Uh, we look at the overall S and P 500. We break that down into sectors. We look at valuations, market trends all this type of stuff, looking at relative performance. I showed you this chart a second ago. Um, we also run a weekly technical composite that tells you if the market's overbought or oversold on a week. This is a composite of about 15 different technical indicators. Is the market grossly overbought or oversold? Um, we have our own proprietary greed fear index. The, the, the complaint I have with the CNN fear greed index, I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, just the complaint I have with it is that it uses the S&P to measure the S&P. Our, our greed fear index is looking at how investors are allocated to the markets to determine if they're being greedy or fearful. So as a relative measure of the S&P, looking at the S&P, how are we positioned? Are we over overexposed equities or underexposed equities? So I, I think it gives us a better signal about overbought, oversold, fear uh, conditions in the markets. Again, the risk range report. And then we also provide stock screens every week. So if you're looking for stock ideas, we provide those in the newsletter as well for you. And again, it's all free. And of course, all the trades that we do in our portfolios. Okay, great. And again, people can A, get this for free. B, they don't need to be working with you guys as clients, right? Just anybody can get this, right? 
Right. Yeah. So okay. just go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And there's a link on the- Can A, get this for free. B, they don't need to be working with you guys as clients, right? Just anybody can get this, right? Right. Yeah. So just okay. go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And there's a link on the front page that says subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, we also produce a daily market commentary that goes out every morning at 730. So if you want like a daily update, what we're thinking about the markets today, that's free also. Um, and we post three blogs a week, which are free. So, you know, there's just a ton of free stuff at the website to help you manage your money better. All right, great. So to to bring in yet another uh, iconic uh, band uh, analogy, uh, if you want more cowbell, if you want more Lance Roberts, <laughs> exactly. we'll follow those if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't get enough here, you can exactly. go more at the website. If the hour and a half plus that you get from Lance here every week isn't enough for you, you can gorge yourself over at realinvestmentadvice.com. All right, look, um, uh, lots more to ask you, but because you brought it up, can you just talk for a moment about what's going on in the reverse repo market and if folks should be paying attention to it? Yeah, it's kind of like the dollar deal, uh, the dollar devaluation or de-dollarization issue lately. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, it was on uh, uh, Tucker Carlson did a whole segment last night on Fox Business on dollar de-dollarization. De and, um, you know, it's like, look, it, it's, is it an issue? Yes. Uh, not in our lifetimes. It's going to be a very long time. You and I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, it's like a, like a rising sea levels type of thing where it yeah, indeed yeah. may happen, but it's not, they're not going to jump by 10 feet tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And so just calm, as, as my wife always says, calm your <laughs> so, you know, just calm down. Oh, come on. You're making me having to edit that now, brother. <laughs> All right. Uh, just calm down. It's fine. Uh, anyway, uh, but no, reverse repo is kind of interesting. So, you know, there, there's a couple of, you know, a lot of conversation lately about what's happening in the reverse repo market. And what, so what is that? Um, reverse repo is a, a program by the Federal Reserve and it's reverse repurchase agreements. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's basically, I'm the Federal Reserve and Adam is a bank, as an example. Um, it can also be a mutual fund. It can also be an investment bank. Anybody that has access to the Fed window, right? They can take advantage of this program. The the it's basically an overnight agreement. I sell as a Fed. I sell securities to Adam, and Adam says, "Great, I'll buy that security from you at X price." And so we agree on a price, whatever that is. Tomorrow. The Federal Reserve says, okay, I'm now going to repurchase. This is one's called reverse repurchase. So reverse repurchase. Because now the Fed says, oh, that Adam, I'm going to buy that back from you. And we have an agreed to price that's higher than what I sold it to you to start with. And the differential is basically the interest rate. So there is no Fed funds rate, right? So when the Fed talks about the Fed funds rate, they always talk about the Fed fund target rate. That's their that's their target. I would like, you know, the the interest rate at four point seven five percent. If you go download the the effective Fed funds rate data from the Federal Reserve, uh, from the St. Louis Fed, sorry, um, you can actually chart it, and it moves up and down. But it's not the smooth lines of just here here. You know, this was the Fed meeting, and then here's the next Fed meeting. This thing moves up and down. And that's because the market is working around that target rate. The real rate is adjusting daily. It might be half a basis point higher or lower than what the target rate might be. And that's being adjusted by this reverse repurchase program. That's what the Fed uses 
to kind of keep that Fed funds rate around their target. And so this this is what's happening in the overall market. Now, all of a sudden- right. the, and Sorry to interrupt, but when they, when they talk about the Fed's fund rate, the Fed, they actually give it as a, as a range. That's right? It's like a 25 basis point range. They don't actually give it an actual percentage. They say it's from here to here. Correct. And, yeah. uh, and that's why, because there, there isn't a Fed funds rate. It's a target rate, an yep. area they would like it to be. And so that's how they, that's how they manage um, what happens with, with bank liquidity, et cetera. So what's interesting is, and what's a attention, is there's two and a half dollars sitting in this reverse repo program. So there's a whole bunch of money sitting over here. Now, what's going on with that? Well, this and is- Sorry, Lance, I think you glitched there for a second. Can you repeat that number again? Okay, so there's roughly like 2.3 to $2.5 trillion sitting over here in this reverse repo program. And of course, this has gotten everybody's attention because you know what was it like back in 2008 during the financial crisis? Surely that was a massive number. No, it was like 300 million. I mean, it was very small. In fact, you go look at the pandemic, it barely even shows up on the chart. It's, um, so the, this program has really gone out. And, and what this is, 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 is due to is all this liquidity that we pumped into the system back in 2020, 2021. And that's where really this program really started to take off was when all that liquidity, quantitative easing, um, and of course, all the, the fiscal uh, programs were dumped in. We sent cash to households. What did they do with it? Well, they put it in their bank, right? So there's all these extra, extra bank savings that are now in this being used through this repurchase program. And so there's there's two kind of two things about this. One is that this is part of the issue that's putting stress on banks because when, and, and I'm not talking about the big banks, I'm talking about small to mid-sized banks. Um, you know, the, there was, I was uh, doing the radio show this morning and on CNBC, they had a, a, a chart up on CNBC of the different interest rates. It was a commercial for interactive brokers and they had a chart of the different interest rates that banks were providing, you know, swabs like 0.1%, um, JP Morgan's like 0.01%. Nobody's paying you any money on money markets and an interactive broker is going, hey, put your money with us. We're paying four and a half percent. Um, you know, that's what Fidelity will pay you on a money market fund. Mm -hmm. So money market funds are paying four, four and a quarter, four and a half percent, much more than what banks are. But banks are storing all this money in reverse repo and they're getting four and a half percent from the Fed and paying you squat. So and I have <laughs> ranted about this a lot on this program. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but the reason is twofold. One, the banks don't really want your deposits for, first of all, because They've got a problem. They've got nowhere to lend it. If you take a look at what's going on right now with delinquency rates and credit cards and auto loans, those are surging up. Tightening lending standards in the sub 100 market cap banks are all getting markedly tighter on credit cards, auto loans, home loans, commercial real estate loans, because they're now worried if, you know, taking that risk, if I'm going to, if I'm the bank, do I really want to loan Adam money for a car or for a house or for a, a commercial business in this environment? I'm, I'm not sure he's going to make it. I'm not sure he's going to pay me back. So I'm really starting to pull back from that from that lending. So that only leaves me really one place to store the money right now because right. I also need, because most importantly, I also need the collateral. Again, what happened to Silicon Valley Bank was a, a problem. They, they didn't do anything really wrong. 
their collateral had gotten depressed in price because of rising interest rates. And then all of a sudden they had a massive run on the bank. They had $40 billion right. evaporate overnight. Well, 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 they didn't, they didn't hedge against that rising they rate. Didn't hedge. So they did, their risk management was wrong, but yes, you know, yes. they were, they were right. buying quote unquote safe, you know, assets that just right. the duration burned them in a, in this sort of, yeah. Um, can, I, can I just ask a question about that for a second? So look, um, yeah, to a certain extent, you're like, why wouldn't banks do this, right? Like I've talked about this with Nick Jurley about um, uh, housing market investing, right? Where like now, because of these much safer alternatives, it's like uh, in the way in which housing uh, rental returns are, are, are all of a sudden not nearly as positive as they were. It's like, why take on all the risk? I've got this excess capital. Why take on all this excess risk that's currently in the housing market and, and just in general with being a landlord and whatnot? And why not just put that money into something that's paying me like 4.8%, right? That's totally safe, right? So a lot of people are deciding I'm, I'm not going to buy that that rental building anymore. And I'm I'm now going to just park it in treasuries, yeah. right? The bank is making the same decision. Like why, why lend to these people who are kind of riskier and the market environment's getting more risky? Let me just go to the Fed and get this. Like, I totally get why they're doing that. Um, these are kind of like perverted incentives because obviously banks yeah. are there to lend and support the local economy. But we gave them all this money. <laughs> <laughs> they're now getting a bunch of kind of free profit off of yeah. it, right? Yeah, they and, and they're not fulfilling their function in the community anymore, or at least near, not as much as they were, right? So, I mean, I, I have a hard time, like, I, I, I do get a little angry thinking about this, which is like, well, they're getting all this free money. And, and to your point, they're not, at a minimum, they're not sharing it with their depositors, right? <laughs> Right. Well, see, and then this was uh, this was I was just about to say is that see the banks have a problem. So the problem for the banks is is, is and uh, now again when I talk about the banks at the, in this kind of conversation, you can just take J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, take the top five banks, just set them off on the side. They are not banks. They, they are the they are they are kind of a different breed of thing uh, in this environment. For the but for the regional you know, mid-sized banks to small banks. Remember, most of these banks are just your community banker. Their whole their whole platform is I make money by you depositing money with me. I then loan that money out and to a, a, a business or a person or whatever it is for a period of time. And I do need to keep some reserves in-house because I have these demand deposits. A demand deposit is basically money on demand, checking account, savings account, Adam can show up any day and say, I want all my money out of the bank. I'm going to go buy a boat, right? And so I've got to be able to redeem that. So I've got to keep some assets over here in liquid collateral. And I do that by buying bonds. Um, and this is what I was just about to say with uh, Silicon Valley Bank is that they had collateral sitting over there. And so when these deposits came in, the problem was they had to sell all their collateral at a deep discount because interest rates gone up and their collateral values had gone down. Well, Banks have two, when you look at a bank balance sheet, they have two pots of their securities that they're holding. They have one pot over here that's normally a very small sliver that's hold to maturity bonds. So they have these bonds as collateral that they're going to hold till maturity. And these are maybe 10-year treasuries, whatever it is. Then they have the much bigger pot, which is auctionable securities. These are securities that they can sell at any time to meet demand withdrawals. So if you show up and of course they've got cash on hand, but let's say you show up and you need a million bucks and they've got half a million on hand, they'll go sell $500,000 worth of these bonds that they can, that are tradable, sellable at market value. So as long as those, as long as interest rates haven't gone up, 
that's they, they've got plenty of room to work with. And what's interesting is if you look at that, I've actually got this chart in the newsletter this weekend, if you want to see it, it's very fascinating that over the last year, as the Fed's been hiking rates, you can see this balloon. So in, in the total balances of this collateral that banks are holding, that little sliver down there that was hold to maturity has now become a very small mountain. Um, and so all of a sudden they're having to go, okay, well, that bond, uh, yeah, it's now hold to maturity. Oh, that bond is now hold to maturity. So their collateral that they have available for sale is shrinking rapidly. So that is making them a much more risk averse to making loans. So here's the problem for the Fed. The Fed could effectively get rid of that reverse repo by lowering the rate that they would pay to the banks on that overnight repurchase. So they could make it less attractive, right? So, well, and then theoretically, what would banks do? Banks would supposedly take that capital instead of putting it into re reverse repo, they'd go lend it out. But I don't want to. I don't like this. There's no good opportunities to loan it out right now. And more importantly, it doesn't work to the Fed's benefit because if I put that money back into the system and bank loans, what do I create? Inflation. So the last thing the Fed wants to do is pull that reverse repo out all of a sudden and put it back into the economy and create inflation. So it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting situation because on one side, you've got banks that are theoretically under stress because of higher interest rates, lower collateral values. The Fed can't get that money back into the banks and money markets don't share with banks. So that doesn't work well for small banks either. But the Fed can't get that money out of reverse repo back into the banks alone because it'll create inflation. So it's an interesting standoff. Boy, that is really interesting. Um, so a couple of quick things. One, this money is these re reverse repos. That's a that's a that's a guaranteed win bank, uh, guaranteed win bet for the bank, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. like a nightly hand of blackjack that they know they're going to win, right? So they no, just no, no, it. it's not it's not even it's not even a bet. It's me coming to you, Adam, and I say. I'm going to sell you this bond for a dollar. I'm going to buy it back tomorrow for a dollar ten. You good with that? And you say, right, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm going to say, yeah. The, the, the bet is that the Fed is actually going to pay them what they say that is. And of course, it's the Fed. It will, right? So they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. they, they, they know they're going to get this free money. What's so interesting is, is the Fed is using money, right? Using free money to banks yep. to keep money out of the economy because it wants to destroy demand. Right. Yeah. And that's what Pal's talking about. It's so interesting, right? It's like, how do you destroy demand? Oh, you give free money. It's why that's, that, that seems strange, but but you've done a good job of explaining it. Yeah. So let me let me just recap what you've said then uh, to the question of should folks worry about this? You're basically saying, no, this spike in reverse repo, it's not a sign of of banks all of a sudden being really weak and having to really lean on the Fed for life support here. Uh, they're actually just taking the best bet they can find in this market right now. Rather than lend it out, I'm just going to get free money from the Fed at this rate. Yeah. And, and the Fed's using this to try to sop up a lot of those, that excess money that we injected to the system back in uh, 2020, 2021. So the Fed- yeah, but, but just to be clear though, it's not really sopping it up. It's because it still exists. It's, it's no, giving so it, it back it's, to the banks every day. It's just keeping it in this limbo state, right? It, exactly. It's just, it's just, it's keeping it out of the economy is what it's not getting lent through the economy. So it's just keeping it out of the economy. So, you know, so yeah, so both parties are kind of benefiting from this, this bit of cushion that's sitting over here. Um, you know, because, you know, and if we look back also at, you know, the, you know, at money, at money, you know, MIM2 as a function of money supply, you know, and this goes back to the issue of uh, quantitative easing. This is one of the arguments that I got uh, when I was writing this article. It's like, oh, well, that's just the Fed, 
because all this quantitative easing that they put in, they're now getting quantitative easing back out in a different way other than doing QT. And that, that's not really true right. because back in 2008, we did a bunch of quantitative easing and money supply M2 didn't rise that much. It rose a little, but not a lot. We've had a massive spike in M2 in 2020, 2021, because we sent checks directly to households far different versus an asset swap with banks. This was money into households that went where? Right into banks. So it's savings, right? So if you got out of the check, what do you do with the check? You put it in the bank. And what the bank have to do with it? The bank had to do something with it. So that's the whole cycle. That I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people got bought cars and boats too. But but yeah, yes, a chunk of that. <laughs> it went through the bank. It, it, it got in there. Uh, but so so now, but that's what I'm saying is like this this big surge in this repo program is sopping up a lot of that excess money that's still sitting in savings. Okay. Um, Wow, I could keep talking about this for a while because um, I understand why the Fed doesn't want it going into the economy and stoking inflation right now. Like you said, part of me feels like I'd almost rather have the, the Fed deal with this by sort of mandating that banks have to pay higher deposit rates because that would a reward in a, a behavior that would really benefit everybody, which would be people saving more. Right? That that money's still not necessarily going out in the economy. But that's not, but that's not, but see, that's not good for the banks either. See, JP Morgan, why does JP Morgan pay 1%, 0.01% on their money market? They don't really want your deposit because again, you deposit money, what do I have to do with it? I've either got to loan it out or I've got to go buy bonds with it, right? And neither one of those are advantageous. So. Right. Well, and well, they also have the benefit too, though, of like, well, you're going to put your money with us anyways, because you know, we're safe. So yeah. I don't have to, if I don't have to pay you and you still give me your money. <laughs> That's great, right? That's even better. Yeah. yeah. And there's been like $300 billion that's transferred now out of small banks into big banks. Just I know, which, which I, I just think is, again, perverse. But, right? but, but it is. But also keep it in perspective. It's $300 billion on $17 trillion in deposits. Right. So it's a, it's a very small fraction. But it's not nothing, right? It's, and it's, not, a, lot, it's a lot to those banks nothing. that are losing it. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, great. Uh, so if there's nothing else on, on repo that's no. worth flagging for folks besides go read your article when it comes out this weekend, I have a ton of data that we haven't right. gotten into yet. And I know yes. we're a bit pressed for time here. So I'm going to I'm going to soldier through if that's OK. You go ahead. Um, all right. So um, uh, yields uh, have been marching down. Uh, bond yields have been marching down um, pretty dramatically. So over the past week, the 10 year has gone from 3.6 down to 3.2 percent. Over the past month, it's gone from 4.1 down to 3.2%. Um, that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? I mean, for, for bonds to move that much that quickly? Yeah. So, you know, recap, we bought bonds uh, prior to the FOMC meeting and just prior to the Silicon Valley Bank uh, blowout. Uh, we just bought more bonds this week because you now have a very confirmed technical breakout on the 10-year treasury that now looks like we're gonna see a, a pretty decent advance in bonds. This is all this is all a good indicator that the economic weakness that we've been talking about for a while is starting to actually show up in the economy now. So okay. people are- so, 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 Sorry, but just to be clear, because this is important, yeah. do you think yields are more likely to continue going down from here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If we have a recession, yields are going to 1%. So right. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question I've, I just asked you last week, but I now get to ask you again. <laughs> Did we miss the window to no. go long duration? I, I am actually writing an article that'll be out on the website on Tuesday called Treasury Bonds, It's Time. Um, so 
now have a very well-defined bottom in treasury bonds. The top of interest rates is now in. You have not missed the trip yet. Um, I would use, in, look, interest rates aren't going to go straight down either. Uh, rates are going to tick back up. We'll probably, see, I won't be surprised if we see a 3.5 or a 3.6 handle uh, sometime in the next, you know, couple of months. It could very well happen. And, and, and you will see that as a buying opportunity. Oh, yeah. Any, any, yeah. Anything that puts rates back up towards three and a half percent, I'd be a buyer. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's really important to know. Um, I just also want to note too, while those rates are coming down on the longer duration treasuries, we haven't seen much movement yet um, on the short end, which maybe we wouldn't expect to see it if it's more concerns that are driving this. So like the three-year and six-year are still yielding 4.8% right now. Right. And they should, because that's where the Fed is trading, right? So right, right. the three-month, so, so just to recap, I know we've said this about a billion times before, so I apologize, but just to recap for everybody, um, what drives the short end of the yield curve? So what is the yield curve? Yield curve is when you take a look at, like if you took, took a piece of graph paper and said, okay, what's the yield on the three month, the six month, the one year, the two year, the five year, the 10, you know, 30 year. And you drew a line, it would make a nice little kind of a sloping curve on a piece of graph paper. So that's the yield curve. Right. And sorry, but just want to let folks know, generally, yields go up the further out in time you go. And that's to compensate you for the time value of money and the risk involved in having someone have your money for a longer period of time. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, so, uh, but what affects those yields, and again, to your point, what affects those yields, uh, on the short end of the curve, so the three-month, the six-month, the one-year, the two-year, those have a super high correlation to the Fed funds rate. So whatever's happening on the short end um, of the curve is is generally approximation of whatever the Fed, what is happening with the Federal Reserve Fed funds rate. So those are very, very close in terms of proximity. So the, the only thing the Fed can control is that short end of the curve. And that's your variable rate credit cards, that's your auto loans, that's those type of, of debt instruments on that end, your know, very short-term debt. Once you move out on the curve, that is economic growth, inflation, and wages. That's what drives the long end. And that's where once you get to 10-year, 20-year, 30-year bonds, that's your mortgages, that's your uh, you know, longer duration corporate loans, those type of things, that's on the long end. And, and if you think about it, if I'm going to loan Adam money for 10 years, I don't really care about what the Fed's doing right now with interest rates. I want to know if Adam's going to pay me back in 10 years. That's the real question. So I look at, at Adam's credit quality, right? And, and everybody knows Adam, you know, probably won't pay his bills. So, you know, in that environment, I'm going to charge I'm, Adam a whole lot more. I'm always the deadbeat in your example. I know. Well, you're always, you know, moving around, can't get a backdrop put together. I mean, <laughs> you know, so. Fair, so, fair point. Uh, yeah. So, but, but the point is, is that there's the factors I look at for Adam on a long term is what's the economy going to be like 10 years from now? What's inflation going to be like 10 years from now? And I've got to make those estimates because I don't get to come back and tell Adam in six months, oh, yeah, I didn't like that interest rate. You know, in inflation's gone up. I need to raise your interest. Rate. I don't get that choice because those are fixed payments over that 30-year period or 20-year period or 10-year period, whatever it is. So I've got to be pretty good in my estimates and then adjust for that risk of me being wrong and adjust for the risk of him being a good payer of his debt. So there's a lot of factors that go in that long-end curve, but those are all economically and risk-centric. And so that's why you're seeing those interest rates on the long-end come down because now people are picking up on this idea that, oh, wait a second, the economy is not as strong as I think you know, that's going to be the risk 
that you know I'm going to have to deal with. And so we're starting to see that idea that slower economic growth out there along into the curve. I don't really want to be out there. And so that's starting to drop those yields on the long end. Okay. All right. Um, great explanation. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, well, let, let me let me go back to my question for a second. So um, you know, we would expect to see the Fed dictate the action on the short end. Right. Um, but but also when when people are getting worried about um, uh, a near term crisis, what we tend to see in the yield curve is an inversion, right? Right, and that's what we have been seeing. In fact, almost every yield curve is inverted right now. Um, but you were basically saying that that um, uh, you know you, you think the act activity that we're seeing right now in, in yields on the longer end of the curve is is suggestive that. The chickens maybe people are thinking the chickens are maybe now on their way to coming home to roost correct yeah absolutely look i you know and look you know you know we talked about this before and and i actually you know i've, I've written about this a couple of times i don't know how we don't have a recession you know honestly you, you take a look at the ism data you take a look at the leading economic indicator data you take a look at the economic composite in data you know everything all the data says we're going to have a recession the fed's hiking rates to slow the economy, if you're going to slow the economy, you're going to have a recession. That's just kind of part and parcel of how all this works. And that's how you get rid of inflation. So the Fed wants a recession. They may not say that, but that's what they want. You know, the data says we're going to have a recession. ISM services yesterday at 51, that's still an expansion, but down from 55 and much lower than the 54 expectations. And the internal components were terrible. Right. And the manufacturing section was even worse. And we'll talk yeah. about that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. ISM manufacturing is deeply in contractionary territory. But again, you know, the thing we want to understand though also is that services now make up 80% of our economy. Manufacturing is only 20%. That was inverted back in the 70s. So manufacturing used to have a lot bigger driver on the economy than it does today. Services is very important. It also has a lower multiplier effect, which is why the economy doesn't grow as fast anymore either. But Another conversation for another day. Yep. Um, but but like I said, I don't know how we get around not having a recession yet. You know, economists are raising their economic growth rates for this year. S&P is raising their earnings estimates for this year. I'm, you know, just, you know, people, the markets are doing well uh, since October, suggesting that there's no recession on the horizon. I don't know who's going to be right. Uh, I tend to want to lean towards the economic fundamentals, but, you know, we have to make room for something being different this time. All right. This is a great transition to what I want to get to do next. But real quick, I think I might have asked you this question before, but I want to ask it again. So there's a very big disconnect right now between what the market thinks is going to happen and what sort of history and math right tell us is going to happen. In terms of this disconnect, uh, how how big is it relative to other disconnects you've seen in your career? Uh, this is one of the larger ones. Um, I don't remember a period in time where the market was this disconnected from the underlying economic fundamentals, but there's also a difference this time. Um, and I hate saying that because we all know what saying it's different this time is, but this time really is different because as we, as you and I talked about before, the big difference is that we've been training the markets for a decade now to just respond to the Fed. We don't even really, you know, while we look at the employment data, the market really doesn't care about the employment data. They just want to know what it means and what the Fed's going to do next. So, you know, tomorrow we'll have the employment data come out and the first the, the first blush of headlines is going to be either it was stronger than expected or weaker than expected. What does that mean for the Fed at the upcoming meeting? 
right? Then that's and that's the difference that we've got to deal with this time around. Right. I, I would say maybe the other difference this time around too is the fact that we shoved an awfully big pig into the <laughs> economy python, and we still don't know really how much of it is left. And I, I read a headline the other day that suggested that there was still like a trillion in excess savings still kind of sloshing around. And uh, it's a lot. And if that's true, it just means it can distort a lot of natural market forces for longer than than many of us can can imagine. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, but to your point about, OK, the, all that really matters to the market is what it thinks the Fed's going to do. Great segue. So um, <clears throat> the Fed was surprised earlier this week, along with the rest of the world, uh, by uh, a production rate cut. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Production cut <clears throat> at OPEC for oil right. production. Right. That is inflationary. Right. Uh, price of oil jumped on that. Um, you know, a lot of discussion here that this may be just sort of the start and that oil might start creeping back up here again. Um, the Fed, but with Bullard being the sort of the spokesperson for, for this week, you know, said, hey, yeah, caught us by surprise. It's inflationary. Um, he just did a, an interview with with Bo uh, Bloomberg, uh, which, you know, basically said, hey, look, you know, we've, we've got the tools to use if we need to. And, and, and my sort of interpretation of, of, of that was saying, you know, look, we're going to continue to fight inflation. And if we end up over tightening and going too far, we know how to undo that, right? We, we know how to turn on the monetary floodgates. Uh, we know how to do stimulus. And he reiterated that he thinks the Fed is going to need to go over 5% on the Fed funds rate. And when pressed, he said, well, you know, my, my latest read is that kind of the committee here at the Fed thinks that it, it's going to need to go a little over 5.5%. And he said, I think it's going to need to be a little more than that. So he's kind of erring on, on, on the high side here, right? So the point is, is um, a lot of people think that, that Powell is going to pause next. And he very well may. I just did an interview with Bill Fleckenstein, who thinks the Fed's going to pause here and, and, and then hold it for the rest of the year. So he doesn't think the Fed's going to hike anymore. You and I have been talking about the wisdom of the Fed pausing and probably should have paused a while ago because we, we've talked all about the lag effects and waiting to see what happens there. But my point is, is the market that seems so incredibly confident that the Fed is going to pivot really soon, the Fed just got another reason why it needs to be steadfast right now against inflation with this oil production cut, right? And, and the Fed is still talking, Powell from a couple of weeks ago, Bullard this week of, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> Pivoting is not on our radar at all right now. Um, Bullard's still talking hikes. Um, and, and it does seem from a lot of people's standpoint that Powell is going to literally pause unless he is forced from here. So um, here's uh, here, here's my question for you, which is, um, uh, you know, at best, we can hope for a pause. And just want to note, too, that in recent weeks, uh, Bank of Canada's paused. The Australian central bank has paused. Today it was announced that the Indian central bank has paused. So we may very well follow suit and pause, but a pause is not a pivot. It still keeps rates really high. Um, uh, there's a chart that the Fed, uh, that the Zero Hedge puts up a lot. It's a Bloomberg chart. I'll put it up here. Um, but it shows that we're kind of at the greatest point of disconnect between the Fed's dot plot projections and where the market thinks um, interest rates are going to be going forward from here. Um, so back to your point, Lance, like this is one of the bigger disconnects that I think we've seen here. If indeed the Fed stays the course and hikes or pauses and, and keeps it from here, 
especially if those recessionary forces that you think may be coming in force really do begin to appear. But it just seems that in, in, unless there's something we're missing here, the market likely or, or potentially has a pretty big repricing in front of it, right? Yeah. Where it says, you know what, we were wrong. The Fed was not going to pivot and we've got to reprice that in. Or, or my God, we, we were believing the soft to no landing scenario. And now it looks like it's going to be hard. But, but if history and math is right, it does look like there's a potential for a big downward repricing here, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so if you take a so going into the next FOMC meeting, I think right now as of as of this morning, it was basically a 50-50 split between no hike and a 25 basis point hike. So um, you know, but what is interesting is is the to your point, the Fed is talking about, okay, either whether they hike at the next meeting or stay flat. What they're saying is, is we're going to stay there for a while. Even Loretta Master, uh, Mester this week, she flip-flopped in two days. Uh, the first, uh, she came out on Monday and she said, oh, yeah, we're going to have to hike above 5% right now because of, you know, inflation. That's still our main focus. And the, the, bank, the, financial, uh, the financial banks, they look completely fine. So don't worry about that. Um, the next day we had the ISM services index come out. She's like, well, maybe we're done hiking. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, very quickly, there was a flip-flop there. But the, the point is simply this. Whether or not they hike or not, they're not going to be cutting anytime soon. But yet the market thinks the Fed's going to be cutting rates by June and will be down 110 basis points in the Fed funds rate by the end of the year. That's not what the Fed is saying, but that's what the markets are betting on. So to your point, if the economy does slow down, and gets into a recession, yes, the Fed will probably start cutting rates. But the problem for the market is, is that their expectations of earnings estimates are still way too high. And now they're even higher because they upped those estimates into 2024, back to where we were in January of 22. So all that's got to come down, which means you have to reprice equities lower at some point for that. And valuations are still too high for slower economic growth. So you, you've got the market's got a problem ahead of them. And if the Fed doesn't cut, you're going to have, you know, a bigger problem as well. So, I mean, it's just no matter, you know, where the market goes, this is what I was saying earlier. I don't know how you don't have another leg. You know, again, when I say this, don't go, don't go running off thinking I'm talking about a 50%, you know, fall off in the market. You know, you're going to have to have some repricing to adjust for lower earnings which means the market is going to have to come down some more, but that might be 10%, it might be 20%, uh, but whatever gets that valuation back in line, um, you know, between, between the P and the E, right? That's what gets your valuations. So to get those valuations down, prices will have to come down to adjust for lower earnings, but you got to know where those earnings are going to wind up first. Yeah, so we're about to be going into earnings season, right? Because we just finished Q1. So, you know, obviously... Whatever the earnings are is going to be important, but it's going to be really important. Obviously, it's going to be the forward guidance that these companies yeah. offer. Right? Say, yeah, absolutely. Look, what they report, don't don't even worry about that. They're they're going to say, oh, we beat estimates by a penny or missed by a penny, right. whatever. That's I, the game. And as I tell you every time we do this, it's millennial earnings season, right? We lower the bar, everybody gets a trophy, and so we all go on. What's going to be important is what they say about the next couple of quarters. If their views aren't, oh we're seeing consumers come back to spend money. Oh, our inventories are in line to what we want. Our supply chains are full, whatever. You know, if they're not coming out with fairly good guidance, I think there's some repricing risk to the downside. So I was going to ask, like, besides like 
you know, a crack addiction, um, <laughs> what has caused uh, analysts to raise their forward earnings uh, recently? But but maybe it is just a continuation of the game, right? Where it's Wall Street just saying, "Hey, we're we're setting next year's limbo bar now," and yeah. and just like you know, GDP quarterly estimates, it's probably going to walk down all through the quarter, and by the time we step over it at the end, everybody is going to be able to because you know we yeah. started high, and then we can all say, "Oh, we beat at the end." No, that's exactly it. And this is why it's, you know, every time you look at the beat rates, right? Everybody's like, oh, we had 70% of companies beat earnings and 80% of companies beat earnings. And it's it's all nonsense because, uh, first of all, they're beating operating earnings, which are earnings without all the bad stuff. And if you actually reported gap earnings, you, they probably wouldn't be beating that much. Um, but secondly is, is because we don't hold analysts to their estimates. If we actually held analysts and say, okay, Adam, you're the analyst. You get what's Apple going to earn this quarter, and you say it's going to earn a buck fifty. Okay, you're in. You're, you're that's your bet for the quarter. You can't change it. The problem is, is that yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm going to do a Fox Business interview with Ed Giardini here uh, right after we finish up our conversation today, and you know he's very bullish on earnings. He's like, oh yeah, earnings estimates are, are super high. Well, it's great to be bullish, right? And it's great to be optimistic because nobody remembers that you said earnings were going to be here and then you said earnings were going to be here and then you said earnings were going to be here and then everybody beat earnings that you said were down here. Nobody remembers all those revisions to the downside. They just remember that everybody beat what you said they were going to beat. Right. Uh, but that's the way the market <laughs> works. And so being bullish and optimistic is always much more fun side of the ledger to be on. It's It sucks to be a bear. Nobody wants to hang out with boring people, right? So be bullish. <laughs> everybody wants to hang out with you. Um, but, the, but the point is, is that we have to be rational about this and understand what we're paying for. And this is the big risk to earnings estimates. You know, if you look at earnings estimates, they say, great, based on the current price and estimates for earnings at the end of next year, valuations are 17 times earnings. And that's the historical fair valuation going back to 2000. Great. So buy stocks, right? Not necessarily, because if you buy those stocks today at 17 times earnings, if earnings aren't what they said they were going to be a year from now, and assuming that prices don't even move, right, you're will have overpaid for those, those earnings that you thought you were going to get by a large degree. And again, price is going to move. And if those estimates come down and you're overpaying today, the price of what you bought is going to come down as well. That's just the math of valuations and how it works. Okay. Um, hey, just because I said it, I want to put up a chart real quickly here of um, GDP now from Q1. So this is the Atlanta Fed's kind of real-time GDP tracker. And uh, it it was pretty darn robust for the entire quarter. And it's kind of fallen off a cliff here. Um, yeah. I actually don't have it in front of me. So I'm doing this from memory. Uh, you guys can look at the actual chart here and have the final numbers. Um, but I think it was something like, I was predicting like three and a half percent as recently as like 10 days ago. Yep. And it's now down maybe 1.7. I don't know. You guys can see on the chart what it is, but that's what my memory was sort of telling me. Yeah, and that's that's right. And look, you know, if you take a look at the Citigroup uh, surprise index as a good example. Uh, that So the Citigroup surprise index measures the economic data relative to the expectations. So all the economists expect, you know, some economic data point to be X. It turns out to be Y, which was better than expected. Think about all those employment reports that we were talking about over the last few months, right? Coming in a lot stronger than expectations. All of a sudden, just like the Atlanta Fed, all that surprise index is coming down. In other words, the analysts have gotten too optimistic, and now the actual economic data is coming in weaker than expected. So that surprise index is coming down. 
Um, the Atlanta Fed, they just track that, those real-time data points. They always start out pretty high. Um, and, and then as the real-time data comes in, it gets ratcheted down. It, it tends to get and, lower, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're seeing now. I won't be surprised if that data is below 1% by the time we get to the end of the quarter. All right. And I just checked it. Folks already saw this from the chart I put up. It was actually at 1.5 right now. Okay. Yeah. And you're saying maybe when all the data is in, it's even under 1%. But right. And, yeah. and like the jobless claims data that we got on uh, Thursday, um, the last two months, those jobless claims were revised up by more than 50,000 jobs. So, uh, you know, 50,000 claims. So now that data is coming in weaker now. The revisions are now weaker than even what we thought the data was. Right. And we're going to talk about that jobless data in just a second here. Um, that's been one of our one of the big flags we've been raising is that we think this jobs data has been suspect for a long time and we're beginning <laughs> to see the crack in it um real quick just a couple other things that have been new, noteworthy and newsworthy this week um so one is that gold has actually done quite well since uh, we we last met um it punched through the 2000 uh, an ounce level which is a important sort of psychological level right humans like uh, big round numbers, and yeah, and uh, and and when it closed two days ago, I think at like 2040, um, I saw a stat that said like I think it was only one of five times in history that gold had closed at that price, um, or that price or higher, right? So um, this this could be a new leg higher in, in precious metals, and just the point I want to make on it. We'll, we'll see. We'll be tracking it. We'll let you know. Um, but uh, you know, it could be due to a number of things. Um, one that that maybe the Fed is closer to a pause. I just rattled off all those other central banks that are pausing. It's not a pivot, but a pause is still probably interpreted as a step towards a pivot, and an asset like gold might react to that. It could be due to all these screaming headlines of de-dollarization that you've been talking about, plants, right? People could just be saying, okay, you know, fiat currency wars, we're just gonna go hide in gold. Um, obviously, if, if oil is boosting inflation, you know, maybe people are going into gold as a bit of an inflation hedge. Who knows? We're going to find out going forward. I, I do want to underscore for folks real quick, though, if you didn't see it, uh, I, I did an interview earlier this week with uh, Matthew Heipenberg. Uh, honestly, folks, one of the best interviews I've, I've, I've ever done uh, in the history of this channel so far. And um, Matt ends up including as part of his sort of long arc of history and where he thinks uh, things are heading in saying, hey, he thinks gold's an important asset to own. And um, the analogy he used is just the one I want to share you know, here with viewers, which is he said he, he grew up playing competitive baseball. And he said, he said, we kind of knew at the beginning of a baseball game whether we we're going to win or lose, because it really all came down to which team had the better pitcher. Right. We could tell early on if the pitchers were imbalanced that we sort of knew who was going to win the game. And yeah, we'd still go out and he played third base. I'd go out to third base and I'd do what I needed to do. But we knew our pitcher was going to win or lose the game for us you know, pretty early on. And he says when it comes to the, the fiat currencies, he says, look, you know, you just look at, at the loss of purchasing power in every fiat currency over the course of, of the past several decades, you know, past century or whatever. And you look at how gold has held its purchasing power, and he just says, "Look, I just see gold as a better pitcher, currency-wise." And so, you know, if you're looking to just sort of store value in the future, you know, and he's not—he's not saying all the fiat currencies are going to zero tomorrow or gold's going to a bazillion dollars tomorrow. But it, I did like this better pitcher analogy for those that sort of take the long view. So, anything, Lance? Anything you want to say about gold's move right now? Yeah, pretty much everything you said is wrong. Um, so first of all, <laughs> gold is extremely overbought right now. So if you want to own gold, I don't have any problem with you owning it, but remember it's a commodity. Um, Wait, I'm and, not sure where you stand on this issue, Lance. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, the gold, look, gold's had a great run here over the last couple of months. Since October lows, actually, the correlation to the stock market's extremely high. So if, if you look back over the last year in particular, as stocks were selling off, risk assets were selling off, gold sold off with it, gold bottom in October, along with the stock market. So you've actually had a much better return on the equities than gold over the last several months. But um, nonetheless, it's, it's now moved up. It's extremely overbought. So if you want to own it, that's fine. I don't have any problem with you buying gold. But you may want to wait a little bit here. You're Normally, when you get this overbought, you're going to get a pullback in price just because of the technicals of how things work, right? So prices can only move in so far in one direction before they have to have a correction. Last time that we were this overbought was back in kind of early this year. And then we had that fairly decent correction that went in, I think, January, February, um, where, the, where gold sold off by about $100 an ounce or so. So again, you'll get a, a decent little pullback here to where you know you'll be able to make a better entry point to make some money on. So just you know, be be careful about where you enter enter this. Long term gold has not held its purchasing power relative to something else. Uh, Peter Schiff did this analogy about owning uh, buying a suit in gold, and if you bought a suit back in gold, you could day, today you could buy forty suits in gold. If you took the same amount of money and stuck it in the S and P index, you could buy three thousand suits for the same money. So, you know, again, gold doesn't hold, gold isn't an inflation hedge. We're no longer on a, a reserve currency basis where gold is backed or dollars are backed by any commodity. We're a fiat currency everywhere in the world. So, you know, again, it's all about how you invest your money. In theory, it sounds great that if I buy gold, that it's going to hold value, but it really doesn't relative to other assets. Well, yeah. So it's, it's, it was a store value argument relative to other currencies. Right. And store but value. You're, but you're talking about investing. Value. But no, the store value is look. If you're if you're putting it in gold, that's an investment. If I buy silver, that's an investment. I'm not storing my money there. I've just put my I've converted my money into something else. So I can convert it to gold. I can convert it to silver, uranium. I can buy a house with it. Store value there. I can put it in the stock market. Store value there. It's all a store value. It's just a question of where you're putting it. And so the the idea that putting it in gold it makes me feel good because I can hold it, put it in a safe, whatever. I still got to convert it back to dollars if I want to spend it because we're not on a barter system. And I'm not saying that gold isn't a good investment. Don't take what I'm saying is wrong. Just some of these philosophies around it that people throw out there, they sound great in theory, but that's not how things really work economically. So again, it's all about managing risk. It's all about getting the best return on your money over time. And so just put that in the context of where you invest. Should you own some gold? I have no problem with that. I own some gold. I have some, right? So I think you should too. But is it the best investment? That's the thing we want to know. Yeah. And best return your wealth over time, I think, is the great, it's the right North Star. It's why we yeah. have you financial advisors involved in this whole process. Um, all right. Um, I'd love to keep talking about that, but I, I'm like not even halfway through my sheet yet. <laughs> and we got what? We got, you, we got 20 you minutes go left. Long, you, you can go a little bit long today because I have 45 minutes till Fox. Oh, okay. Um, all right. So um, I just want I just want to get your your opinion on this. Um, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I sure hope it does in in the big picture. But um, I, I caught a headline today saying that that Ukraine is is potentially indicating that it's willing to concede Crimea to Russia. Yeah. I mean, Russia's already in it. I mean, it's 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 whatever. That's all but, they wanted. That, yeah. That's all Russia ever wanted was Crimea. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there are a few other eastern provinces that there they is. want to hold on to too, right? Um, which Ukraine is not, to my knowledge, ready to give up on yet. But my point is, is if this is a sign of thawing, that like, okay, wait a minute, 
maybe we can start talking again and, and eventually get to some sort of negotiated peace settlement here. Um, let's all hope at the end of the day that, you know, the fighting stops one way or another. Um, I, I just raise it here to say, you know, you mentioned that you're concerned about where all the macro data is showing we're likely yeah. headed this year and how the market's going to re reprice and all that stuff. But let's, what impact do you think a, a negotiated announcement of a negotiated peace settlement would have on markets here? I think it'd be great, um, honestly, because a couple of things. First of all, th this whole thing started out, you know, originally with this Russian aggression. Uh, you know, this was all about the Black Sea, is about their their uh, military base that Russia has, you know, in Crimea right there on the Black Sea. And then, of course, there was a couple of other regions that you're talking about that were pretty pro-Russian anyway. They they weren't really kind of in the mix of all this. And then this has all kind of, you know, gotten way out of hand, probably more than it should have. Why we're bailing out and providing pensions and social security to Ukrainians. I'm not quite sure what that has to do with, you know, the, the actual war effort, but, you know, we're spending, but we just sent another $2.8 billion, you know, to, to, to the Ukraine over this. And we spent, I think a total now of closing in on $40 billion in terms of funding this war. Again, however you feel about Ukraine and all that has nothing to do with this. This is, you know, economically speaking. Um, but, Look, we're spending a lot of money that we've got to pay for at some point, which is, again, more debt leads to less economic growth over time because it's a diversion of assets that we have to pay interest payments on uh, in order to repay that debt. And so we're, we're, you know, we're helping a lot of other countries with their economic problems rather than our own economic problems that we have here. And you know, we, we complain about these 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 issues. So I think if you could alleviate that pressure, you know, good news coming out of Ukraine would be excellent. That would certainly take uh, one of the concerns off the market that has been laying out there for the last year, which is the potential of a World War III conflict. All of a sudden, Russia starts shooting off nuclear missiles and everybody's in, in you know, we're back into World War III and everybody's engaged. That's been one of the kind of the stories hanging in the background. It'd also be good for the dollar. It would also make the dollar a lot stronger if that happened as well. Okay, so I'm just curious, and, and you're, I'm just asking you to totally postulate here. Um, so we'll hold you to it. But like, that's all it is. It's all postulation. What, 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 what do you think the peace premium would be? Right? What, do, does the market jump ten percent? Does it jump thirty um, percent? You know, no, uh, because if you remember, when we got into this whole mess. The market only went down like five percent originally, and then the market mm -hmm. rallied right after that. Right? So you know, there, there's pro if, if 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 they came out tomorrow and said, oh, we brokered a peace deal. In in Ukraine, and I, I would hope they would do that. If, if Joe Biden wants any any chance to win the next election, he needs a peace deal in Ukraine. That would help him. Um, you know, that's probably good for three to five percent of the market, probably. Okay, okay. So you you've contextualized it then well, which is, uh, I'm going to say the 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 macro story over time is is not going to be that impacted. No. By a peace announcement, no, you probably would be if the war escalated even worse, right? And spills out <laughs> other places, and dear God, right. hopefully it doesn't. But right, yeah, if, if that happens, own defense stocks. That's what you want to own. They'll yeah. they'll make all the money. Um, yeah, no, it, you know, economically, it's not that big of an impact. The, the economic issues that we have here are, are are functions of what we've done to our economy, and and we're we're gonna have to live through that process, whatever that is. You know, just alleviating that threat, that potential threat, 
is going to give a sigh of relief to the markets, right? Temporarily, and, and again, just like when we when when Russia initially invaded Ukraine, the market sold off pretty sharply. I think we were down like three percent that day, and then we had completely recovered that and more in the next three days. So you know, it was it was a very short, brief you know concern when we entered the war, um, and so coming out of this, there'll be a kind of a, a short term sigh of relief. We'll get some money flowing into the markets for that. Uh, defense stocks will probably sell off some because, well, the war's over. Um, and, you know, but then then we're going to pretty quickly focus back on Fed and economy. Okay. All right. All right. Well, look, let's roll up our sleeves here and go through some data for a moment. Um, okay. So you and I have talked, as I said, for many, many of these videos about uh, the jobs market and how um, the the numbers, particularly those that are reported by the government, um, just do not seem to map very well to the developing situation on the ground that we've been tracking now for, I mean, a year plus, but certainly in the past year as layoffs have started and uh, the economy started slowing and all that type of stuff, right? <clears throat> um, uh, let me just go through some, some numbers that were released just this week, right? So we had the, um, the job openings numbers, right? The jolts. Um, I'm just going to quote this article here for a second. After five consecutive beats of expectations and an unprecedented 27 beats in the past 29 months, this is why you and I were so skeptical of all this. <laughs> February is when the BLS seasonally adjusted uh, BS finally came crashing <laughs> down. And not only was the February print below all sell side estimates, but it was the third biggest miss of expectations on record. Okay. So we had a big, massive whiff on job openings. Um, ADP, um, its payroll data, it, it did increase by 145,000 jobs last month, but that was a big miss versus expectations, right? Then we've had initial and recurring claims. You mentioned these briefly. Um, initial jobless claims soared to 228,000. This is the ninth straight week with initial claims above 200,000. Um, continuing claims served, sur sorry, surged above 1.8 million, its highest since December 2021, right? So all of a sudden, we're looking at all of these jobs indicators, and we're finally starting to see bad numbers here, right? So too early to say, oh, you know, the, the, the situation's entirely changed, but you and I have been calling for this for a long time, and we're finally beginning to see uh, data that begins to comport more with, um, you know, the reality that we've been tracking on the ground. I want to put up one chart here. Zero Hedge shows this often. It's Bloomberg data. It shows the labor market surprise index, which is a government reported number, versus the U.S. surveys and business cycles surprise index, which just is more sort of boots on the ground data. And these charts have been diverging now for months and months. And the question's been, OK, they're supposed to be tracking the same thing. <laughs> when do they start to close? And you can see here in the latest data set on this chart, finally, you know, the 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 one that's been much more positive, trending in a positive direction, has now turned negative. And, and the trajectory, at least, is now downwards towards mapping to much more of the reality-based boots on the ground data. Again, for early, early change in the series data here, so we'll keep tracking this. But this is what we expected, is that at some point, those, those you know, too-good-to-be-true government numbers we're going to be proven to be fiction and, and things would come crashing back down to earth. So well, reaction. Yeah, yeah, it's and look, uh, the employment numbers out tomorrow morning. Uh, don't be surprised if that's a little bit stronger than the ADP report. That's been the trend lately. Um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, 
I think there's a reasonable possibility that number could come in weaker than expected, but I thought that for the last couple of months and it's it's coming consistently stronger as well. Because again, it's just, as you said, the, the data really doesn't line up with what we're talking about going on in the economy. Um, you know, what's going to be interesting to watch and, and nobody's going to know this and, and nobody's going to care when we get there, but I'm really interested when we get there in June or July, we will get the revisions to last year's employment data. And it'll be very interesting to see what those revisions look like and if they're sharply negative or, or not. So, you know, those, and again, nobody cares about the revisions when they come out, they just get glossed over and nobody looks at them. I do. Um, but, you know, the next, you know, this, this June and the next June, uh, I think we could see some pretty serious negative revisions to this data. So there was an article I read recently, and I couldn't find it in advance of this recording, um, but it talked about, you know, kind of the procedure that the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses to compile a lot of this jobs data and some of the other government um, entities. And they take sample data and then they basically run it through their models to come up with the, with the, uh, the ultimate number. And they basically sort of admitted through this whole process that like 80% of the numbers that are reported are just all estimate based. Yeah. Where they're like, look, you know, we, we really don't know, right? So we just, we, we have our models and our assumptions and the number that comes out, about 80% of that, only about 20% is based on real data inputs and 80% we're, we're kind of just given our best guess. So it could be wildly wrong. We don't know yeah. yet until those big revisions come out. Well, and we, we've seen those data revisions before that have been wildly wrong. You know, so it's like they go back and they say, oh, three years later, we wind up and we go back. It's like, oh, yeah, we thought we had a million jobs created back in 2012 and it was actually only 100,000 or whatever it was. Big, big differences. Now, at the time, had we more accurate data, you know, markets would have probably performed differently. Fed actions may have been very different at the time, uh, you know, but again, because of the way this data comes in, you know, again, think about it, you're calling 60,000 households once a month going, hey, are you employed? You know, and then you're extrapolating that out to 330 million person population. I mean, how accurate? And then you're making up numbers for births and deaths of businesses. Right. You know, how how, how accurate is that going to be? Uh, you know, and that's why I say, you know, I, you and I talked about this before. I don't understand why they just don't take a sampling, call paychecks, call ADP, call, you know, five other payroll companies in the country Say, how many people did you hire this month? How many people did you fire this month off your payroll system? That's a pretty damn accurate set of data. And I just yeah, don't know. I mean, it's five phone calls versus 60,000. Yeah. So, and and in, a, in a digital economy, in a, in a blockchain world, like yeah. we should be able to track kind of everything at this point and take a lot of the, the guesstimation out of it, but whatever. Um, well, look, important point to underscore that you made is that, you know, the, the Fed is using this data in setting policy. And we have warned that A, it is lagging data to begin with, right? So it's already, you're starting looking in the rearview mirror, but a lot of it could be erroneous, right? So it's like looking in a rearview mirror that's just like spider webbed with cracks and has, you know, distortions and, you know, all sorts of things. So um, uh, when we talk about the fact that the Fed could be over tightening here, you know, I understand their desire to be more conservative uh, when it comes to fighting inflation than not. Um, but still, you know, th th if they had had truer data, they might have decided to pause, you know, several hikes ago or whatever. Yeah. Right. So it's 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 worrisome that the most important decisions in the world, at least economically speaking, are being made with such suspect data. One thing I want to note about this, too, is we've talked about how we've talked about the hope cycle right, which is housing, orders, profits, employment. And these are kind of the dominoes that fall as you go into a recession. 
and they fall in that order, right? Um, and employment, as we've talked about, is one that that moves last because companies are so reluctant to fire people because of the, the investment they've made and finding them and hiring them and training them and all that type of stuff. Um, it's now all of a sudden looking like, you know, what had been giving the administration and, and the Fed and, and a lot of other, um, you know, leaders who talk about the strength and resilience of the U.S. economy, a pillar to stand on to make that claim was the strength of the employment market. Well, now that domino, it looks like it looks, it looks a lot more wobbly than it did um, just a week or two ago. Um, and obviously, you and I think it could be pretty wobbly already. We've just it's been masked. Right. So we're going to find out exactly how vulnerable it is. Um, obviously, if that E tips over, that does really open the floodgates to the recession risks that you're talking about. I also want to flag for folks that after a long time of tracking him down and working with his schedule, uh, I will be interviewing uh, in about a week and a half, Michael Kantrowitz, uh, who is the um, the analyst that put together the Hope Cycle framework. So we'll actually have him here on the program and get to hear from the horse's mouth uh, what he thinks on each one of those, the H, the O, the P, and the E, and where they're headed. Um, real quickly, I just want to make some quick uh, comments about the ISM and PMI data um, we talked about. So the, you were right, Lance, uh, manufacturing survey dropped to... Uh, 46.3 from the prior month, where it was uh, 47.7. It's the lowest level since May 2020, uh, when the pandemic was slowing down much of the U.S. economy. So that is not uh, a healthy indica <laughs> indication result. Uh, and the ISM survey showed all subcomponents of its manufacturing PMI below the 50 threshold for the first time since 2009, right? And if you're below 50, you're in contraction, right? So we're seeing like, pretty bad recessionary readings on this stuff now. It's not like it's beginning to get bad. It's like, hey, we've only seen readings like this when we've been in a recession before. So we'll see what happens there. Last point I wanna make on the data, um, layoffs. You and I have talked about layoffs all the time. Um, Challenger Gray and Christmas uh, just came out with this comment about the tech market where they've said, the technology sector companies have announced over 100,000 cuts so far this year. That's on pace to surpass the highest annual total for the sector announced in 2001, right? So we're seeing dot-com bust layoffs uh, in the tech sector right now. And as those of us who lived through it knew that that was a nuclear event for the technology sector, right? What's different this time is, is 2001 was much more localized in terms of what parts of the economy it hit. Technology obviously got hit the worst. We're now beginning to see this spill out into all sorts of other sectors of the economy here. Uh, and it looks like that wave is still building in intensity from here. But the tech sector itself is already kind of getting to that sort of nuclear uh, state that it was back in the, the dot-com bust. So lots of data there. I guess, sorry, there's one more other note I had here that's worth talking about, which is small businesses. Uh, I know you're laughing, but but these are important because they're telling basically yeah. that this is a, a emerging pattern. Yes. UBS Evidence Lab shows that private bankruptcy filings in 2023 have exceeded the highest point recorded during the early stages of the COVID pandemic by a considerable amount. Right. Um, the four week moving average for private filings in late February was 73 percent higher than in June of 2020. So small businesses got totally decimated by getting shut down during COVID. Now they're struggling to get back on their feet. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing all the issues that we've been talking about here, particularly credit contraction, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, is, is beginning to really nail them. So they said this, this is bad, but the administration is set to raise the corporate income tax to 28% sometime in the coming months. 
the tax hike will affect small businesses at a time when credit conditions continue to tighten. So, I mean, we have just been like pummeling small businesses, which as you and I know, Lance, are responsible for the vast majority of job creation in the U.S. here. Yeah, the, the NFIB survey um, tells you that that story very clearly. It's, a, it's lowest, one of its lowest, lowest readings on record in terms of small business confidence. And that has a very high correlation. I've talked about that with you before. Has a very high correlation to the ebb and flow of the small cap index, which has likewise been under pressure over the last couple of months. Okay, so does sort of everything I just go through does that add validation to your general comment you made at the beginning of this discussion of like, look, I know the market is telling us it sees sunny skies ahead, and we've got all those bullish indicators yeah. green across your dashboard. But like, it's hard to see that continuing through the year with all of these macro issues coming. No, no, that's and that's so. But you know, here's the question that we have to ask, right? So markets. Markets are predictors of future economic growth, right? So the markets tend to bottom six to nine months before the economy historically. Okay, so the question we have to answer is: so ISM manufacturing forty six point three, lowest level since March twenty twenty, is that near the bottom? Right? Are we about to start seeing? Hey, you know, have things gotten negative enough that we're now start to seeing improvement? So think about how the economy works: is that I, I, I buy a bunch of stuff and then so the economy's growing, and then I stop buying stuff, and the economy slows down. But after a while, I've got to buy some stuff, right? Because you know maybe I stored up a bunch of bottled water in my house, but eventually I'm going to run out of water, and I've got to go buy some more water. And so that economy ebbs kind of over time. So the question becomes: Are we closer to that nadir of the uh, of the economic data, that economic trough, and we're about to start seeing some improvement just from a normal economic business cycle, or is the, are things are we just on the cusp of things getting worse, right? That's the answer we don't have and we won't know. And the question is, is that what the market's trying to tell us? I don't know that answer. I think maybe the markets are just being optimistic, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I do too. And that, that that's a great point, which is we gotta we gotta say, yeah, the data is really bad now, but maybe this is as bad as it gets, right? And then the market is already pricing out beyond that. I would just love to see some forecasts or data that suggests that. But besides sort of the analysts increasing their earnings estimates for reasons you and I can't really understand at this moment in time. Well, the the Bloomberg Economist survey or improving economic data is saying it's gonna get better. So what are they citing? Do you know? No, they're just they're making their assumptions that you know pretty much Q two Q three is the bottom of the economic trough. Yeah, well, and it could be okay. So you know, um, I'm, I'm saying that. So I'm not saying they're right or wrong, and I have no basis for how right. they wrote, arrived at that conclusion. That's just the conclusion they have. Right now. Yeah, yeah, um, and again, this is just sort of the risks that we have to be open to as investors, right? Where we can say, look, we're looking at all the data we can see, and it's really bad. But you just gave a good reason for why prices could still go up from here, right? It's because that yeah. said, the, the, the trouble I have with that <laughs> is, is, you know, what we're talking about is could be coming, right? I can make an argument that the magnitude is going to be pretty bad, right? Yeah. It's going to be pretty painful for a lot of people. I don't feel like the market's corrected enough to make up for that. Right. Like we had, yeah, you could say, oh, the markets were down 20% last year. And I'll say, yeah, but you know what? They were ridiculously overextended. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, 
you, you, we just took the, you know, the, the top of the froth off. And I could still have made an argument at the beginning of, of this year that we had a lot further down to go just from a fair value standpoint. So I don't feel like we've had a recession priced into this market yet. Obviously, I could be wrong. But what do you say to that? I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, that's and that's the conundrum, right? That's the that's the whole big challenge of trying to manage money in this market. Where do we put it? Um, you know, are the are the fear mongers right and things are gonna get drastically worse and we need to be, you know, in, in bunkers and beanie weenies and gold? Or is the are the markets right and things are about to start improving? That's the that's the bet, right? We've got to pick one side or the other eventually. And you know, that's part of navigating how we get through this market. I don't have the answer. I wish I did, but I agree with you that, you know, the economic data certainly looks like that we haven't done enough correction in the markets yet to accommodate for a further economic slowdown, just just strip everything else out, just the function of higher rates and the impact on the debt-laden economy. Right. That's it. So, yeah, I don't think the markets have corrected enough. Maybe I'm wrong. And it's quite possible. I'm wrong about a lot of stuff. So yeah, you're, you're like me with housing, where I'm just like, look, I can I can list off a long litany of reasons why I think housing is going to go lower. But if I just start with the fact that mortgage rates are twice where they were a year and a half ago, like I feel like that's an argument enough that it should still be a lot lower. <laughs> but, but yeah, I agree with you. And like you know, I told you, I just bought a house recently. Um, there's been three houses that have sold in that neighborhood since I bought my house that are selling at higher prices than what I paid for. Prices are going back up in that neighborhood already. Well, but yours was like a stink pig, right? No, it wasn't terrible. No, I got it wasn't low- terrible. I, okay. I, I, I know I lowballed the offer. I got a really good deal in this house. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that you know mortgage rates have come down a little bit because ten-year Treasury rates have fallen, thirty-year Treasury rates have fallen, and so just that little bit of a decline has already lifted housing prices in that neighborhood. Oh yeah, ridiculous. So, right. But that's what I'm saying, though. But it's you know, it, it's that shouldn't be happening, right? Right. <laughs> that doesn't seem logical in this right. environment. But but it is meaning it doesn't matter what you and I think. That is yeah. the going price for a house in that neighborhood right now, which is what we always. You do such a good job of reminding us as investors that we can't we can't be too lashed to our 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 dogma um, because at the end of the day the market doesn't care about it, right? And so <laughs> you have to deal deal with the markets that you have in front of us. The other thing that you really laid out there well, Lance, is that you have a tough job. I'm glad I don't yeah. have it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, that job is for sale anytime they want, and it's cheap. So anybody that wants my job, you're more than welcome to it. All right. Well, look, we're, we're going to start wrapping up here. I am going to get to your trades real quickly. I just wanted to do a little sort of mini rant with you. Um, so uh, you moved relatively recently, um, right? You, you sold your place um, because you thought that the market was going to come down and it looks like it did enough for you to get a price you wanted for a house, right? And, and then you're going to be moving again at some point when that house is moving ready. I mean, it's going to be about a year. Okay. But it, it, my point is, is you, you still have like move, your, your move still in your short-term memory. Okay. I'm going through mine. Um, I'm not looking for sympathy. Um, they do <laughs> Good, suck. <I'll> <laughs> They, they do suck. The, the point is, is going through a move is a great experience for just reminding us um, that the average, you know, Westerner just has too much damn stuff, right? Like my wife and I don't think of ourselves as too materialistic or having too many material trappings. And we're still just shocked at how much stuff is going into boxes. And we're really using this as a time to purge. 
I put some tweets out on Twitter as sort of sharing my thought process as I go through this of really trying to zero in on what are the things we really truly value and want to hold on to? And can we just try to get the rest out of our life, right? Um, but, you know, this whole sort of minimalization movement, right? The Marie Kondo, you know, yep. style of, you know, if it brings you joy, great. But if it doesn't, get rid of it, right? Um, it, it is really important. You know, like our stuff to a certain extent does kind of own us. Um, and you really feel that when you got to lug it somewhere new, right? Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm raising all this because I know you've just recently gone through it. And I'm curious to see, you know, what, what your perspective is on this too. Well, we have, we have a very, so we've moved multiple times over the years uh, for different reasons. Um, and every time we move, we go through the same process. And, and because we do, we accumulate stuff. We have four kids, so we accumulate stuff, right? It just happens. Um, but every time we move, everything we touch, if we haven't touched that item in six months, it gets thrown out or sold or something, right? It gets disposed of. So, you know, the theory is, is that we collect a lot of stuff that we hold on to emotionally. It's like, oh, I may need that someday. And you never know when. And normally stuff I get rid of, I need like the next month. But yeah, and that's Murphy's law. <laughs> you know, that just happens. But but the idea is, is simply that is that we try to 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 you know let go let go of stuff because it's really easy to keep you know stuff around. And, oh, I may need that someday, or I bought that because of of this reason or that reason, and you wind up just you know with a bunch of stuff you never touch or use. So we have a six month rule. That's our, that's our, if we haven't touched it in six months, then it's got to go. Yeah, that's a great rule. Um, now, of course, there are certain things that, you know, I don't know, family heirlooms, whatever that, you know, are hard to part with, but, but, you know, we pulled a bunch of stuff that we had in, we had sort of like an unfinished basement that we have sort of our excess storage, right? And I'm pulling stuff out and I'm like, wait a minute, I haven't, to your touch point, I haven't touched this in over a decade. Like, why yeah. does it need to come with <laughs> gotta me? Go. <laughs> gotta yeah. go. Gotta go. It's, you know, it's it's interesting too. I mean, I, I had a whole library of books uh, that I have accumulated over the years. I had pretty every finance book you could probably imagine uh, ever wanting to read, and I've read them all multiple times. And when we moved from this last house, I was like, "That's because once you get a box of books, they're heavy as hell." And I had like thirty boxes of books. And I was like, "Screw that! I am not moving these boxes." And I sold them all. So Th that has been the hardest one emotionally here for me is, is, is books. And, and, you know, I know I'm going to get a lot of blowback from the book lovers here, of which I am a huge one. I'm a right? huge book fan, huge book yeah, fan, huge book fan. Um, but in the era of the Kindle, right, you're like, literally, I can have all of those on this one little thing, right, that is instantly accessible to me anywhere, right? Um, and, and yes, there's the nostalgia and there's the feel of the book in your hands. And there's just the emotional relationship you had with that volume as you were reading it, or it was the one that was given to you when you were a kid that you've treasured your whole life. But to your point, like they just take up a lot of space. And well, most of the time you were not reading that book. <laughs> like well, I know, and that, that, that was really what I came down to was, is that I had this wonderful library. Like you came up in the upstairs of my house. And I had two walls of just solid finance books about everything you can imagine. And what I realized was is I hadn't pulled one of those books off the shelf in two years because when I needed something, I would, you know, go look up one of my old articles where I quoted that something out of that book before, or I would just look it up online and right. get the book yeah. I needed from the book. So it was like, why am I lugging these things around? Because all the data is out there somewhere now. I can just get it. I know that's lazy and I haven't got to chat GPT yet. So <laughs> that may be the next invention, but. Yeah, I mean, it was hard to let go of those books because I was really, I had, you know, notes and highlights and all kinds of stuff. And 
you know, it was hard to let him go, but it was better than hauling him around at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it's a real heartbreaker. But, you know, I will say when you make the decision to let it go, and you just did it with all those books, you said, right? Like, it is freeing, right? I'm assuming you're not regretting that decision. No, no, that no, uh, absolutely not. And, you know, the, after after I did it, it was hard. And then now I look back and we made the move. I was like, oh, it's so nice not to have to haul all those books around again. And now I don't need, I don't miss them. I don't, you know, even think about it anymore. It's just, it's out of my life. So. Right. And, and spatially, you don't need that requirement of, I need a place that has, you know, two rooms full of bookshelves for all these books anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. I know we're going to get some pushback from book lovers and I get it. I get it. Um, so last point on this is I just want to let folks know. Um, just, just real quick. My yeah, wife. Go ahead. Makes, yeah. I was going to say my wife makes sure though, that every time we move that I touch her before we move. So. Yeah. <laughs> Does she have like a six month reminder? It says it touched me in six months. I'm in danger here. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. That's super funny. Um, all right. So just want to let folks know that um uh one of the the bigger personal finance celebrities uh, right now, you know, we all know people like um like well, Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey, right? They're like celebrities in this space. Um, a newer face uh, in this space is a guy named Ramit Sethi. Um, you probably heard of him, Lance, but but he's um, got a ton of followers now. He's actually got a new Netflix series on wealth building that's about to launch. Um, I just landed him uh, for an interview on this program, and and I'm really looking forward to you know kind of hearing all of his best practices for building wealth and all the common mistakes people make that sabotage their progress and all that type of stuff. Total expert on all that stuff. But I am really interested just to have him address the question of, hey, what, what does wealth mean to you, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because he's, I think, got a great perspective like you and I talk about a lot, Lance, where like, hey, yeah, money is important, but it's only one component of wealth. And there's a lot of other things that are, 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 are you know, just as if not more important, like your health and your relationships and all that type of stuff, purpose in your life. Um, but really looking forward to his his commentary on that. And as I've been just deciding what to do with all this stuff and realizing it's quote unquote wealth of things I own, but it really diminishes from my happiness and doesn't add to it. I don't think it's really true wealth. So anyways, I'm, I, I, I'm, I want to let folks know that Ramit's coming on the program and then I'm, I'm really excited to kind of delve into that territory with him. Um, all right, as we wrap up here, Lance, trades for the week. Has it been a busy week for you guys? No, not really, not not too busy wise. You know, we increased our equity exposure. Um, you know, back when we got buy signals uh, about three weeks ago, that's worked out well. Uh, markets have been going up, um, and like I said, recently we've been adding to our bond positions. So uh, just increasing, slowly stepping in, increasing that bond duration. Eventually, the bulk of our trades will be on a longer duration side um, of, of our bond portfolio. But uh, again, we're just moving slowly, taking our time right now. We, I think we've got plenty of opportunities for things to pull back. Like I said, if you want to own gold, gold's very overbought right now. Look for a pullback to buy gold. Bonds are a little bit overbought right now, uh, but on a very bullish signal. So wait for a little bit of a pullback here, add to your bond portfolio. So that, you know, if you just, if you just let the markets give you opportunities, you always make a better trade over time. All right. Good. Well said. Well, look, a great reminder too, Lance, of, of everything that you've laid out in this very chart data rich discussion we've just had here. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in this market. It can be really daunting for the average investor to try to like take all this data in and figure out what to do with it, especially when you sort of describe right now, we have a market that totally wants to party, but experience sort of market watchers like you and I feel like we hear the cop sirens on the way. Right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, it just can be super hard to know what to do in this type of environment. Um, so I'm just going to get on my soapbox for a second and, and repeat my, you know, standard advice for folks to, you know, most people, especially if they have a regular life that understandably deserves the majority of your focus, uh, you know, rather than what next asset to buy and focusing on that, really try to focus on picking the right professional financial advisor to be your guide through all this, you know, one that can create the personalized investment plan for you based upon your risk tolerance and your goals and your needs and all that type of stuff. Um, but more importantly, in this type of sweat, fast changing and uncertain environment, can be the one executing it for you, right? Obviously keeping you well-informed, but as events and developments change on the ground, they can be the ones making the changes in your portfolio for you. If you have a good one who's already doing all that for you, excellent, stick with them, absolutely. But if you don't, or if you'd like uh, the input of one who does, maybe even Lance and his team there at RIA, um, just go fill out the short form at wealthion.com to fill out uh, fill out that form and get a, a free consultation with these guys. Doesn't cost you anything, no commitment to work with them. They just offer it as a public service. Um, all right. Well, look, Lance, as we wrap things up here, um, obviously, whatever the markets do uh, next week, we'll be back here deconstructing it for folks. But any parting words for folks right now? Just one. Have a wonderful Easter holiday. Enjoy your family. We'll worry about this stuff next week. All right. That's great. Great perspective. All right, folks. Well, look, if you've enjoyed this uh, weekly market recap with Lance uh, and like to see these things continue in the future, please do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, thanks so much, buddy. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.